Remain standing for our gospel lesson, which is also our sermon text from John chapter 7. Give your ear to the gospel of God. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come. But your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to the feast, for my time is not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, He is good. Others said, No, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and He taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but His who sent Me. If anyone wills to do His will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Thus far the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to judge with righteous judgment. To see the world as You see the world. To think Your thoughts and to submit our will to Your will. 
Help us to understand what you have to say to us from this passage in John's Gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. You can open your Bibles to John 7 as we walk through the passage today. We're going to cover a little bit more ground than I usually cover. We're going to get through 24 verses today, and it's not even part one where there's going to be a part two. We're just going to do this and then move on after these 24 verses. So it might be a little bit different pace than we're used to. But I wanted to try to get as big of a chunk as we could because really the whole chapter kind of hangs together. The title of today's sermon is Willing the Will of God Will Lead to Knowledge. And I draw this from verse 17 of John 7. Verse 17 says that in order to know whether the word of Christ is true, to understand the teachings of Jesus and to know whether He is from God, you must first be willing to do God's will. You must want to do the will of God before you can know what's really real. Before you can understand reality. Interpret it correctly. Jesus says in verse 17 that if a person wills to do God's will, that person will know whether the teachings of Christ are from God. A right understanding of God's Word is the byproduct of a right heart toward God. To make sense of Scripture, to grasp the Gospel, to know Jesus, you first must have a heart that is willing to do God's will. Our passage from John 7 introduces characters to us who cannot hear what Jesus is saying. They, they hear the syllables and the words, but they don't have ears that really hear. They don't understand because they are not willing to understand. The first group is Jesus' own brothers. His flesh and blood is half-brothers. The second group is the Jewish leaders in Judea. In each case, the problem is not intellectual. It's spiritual. They don't lack head knowledge. They're not missing facts. They lack a heart that is centered on God. Their problem... The reason they don't know Jesus truly, the reason that they can hear Jesus but not hear Jesus, the reason they don't understand His words is that they have corrupt hearts that don't desire what God desires. They, want, they don't want to do what is right and therefore they can't understand or discern the truth. It's a universal principle. Their knowledge of the truth is lacking because they don't want what God wants. And this principle doesn't just apply to unbelievers. For the Christian, knowledge of God and the desire to do God's will grow together or they die together. 
They either thrive together or they wither together. You cannot grow in one without growing in the other. And when you do grow in one, you will be growing in the other. You can't grow in your knowledge of Jesus and His teachings apart from growing in a desire to conform your life to His will. So let's start in verse 1 and work our way through the passage. After these things, Jesus walked about in Galilee, for He did not want to walk about in Judea because the Jews sought to kill Him. Now, the, Jewish, the Jews here are the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem, in Judea, and they were seeking to put Jesus to death. John 5.18 tells us why they wanted to kill Jesus. He made Himself equal with God and He healed on the Sabbath. The paralyzed man you remember at the pool of Bethesda. It's not that Jesus was unwilling to die. That He was scared to die. That's not what John 7.1 is getting at. He knew good and well that His mission on earth was to die. There wasn't any way around that. He even knew that He would die at the hands of of these Jewish authorities in Judea. He wasn't afraid of dying, but he's going to say in verse 6 that his time to die wasn't yet ripe. He's going to hint at that. That wouldn't happen for another six months or so. There was no doubt in his mind that he would have to die and suffer at the hands of these Jewish authorities. But... As the Word who is God in the flesh, He'll die at His own initiative. He'll die when He's ready. He'll die not as a victim, but as a victor. Verse 2 says, Now the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. The Feast of Tabernacles took place in late September, early October in our calendar. And it lasted eight days. It celebrated the fruit harvest. And it was one of the three major festivals in Israel's calendar. The other two were Passover, the beginning of the year, and then Pentecost. Passover was in the spring in our calendar. And it was at the beginning of the grain harvest. And seven weeks after Passover was Pentecost, which celebrated the end of the grain harvest. Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles were the three main festivals. And for each one of these, thousands of pilgrims would stream up to Jerusalem to participate in the festivities, in the ceremonies. The Feast of Tabernacles was a time for Israel to remember God's provision for them. Particularly, His provision for them when they wandered in the desert after coming out of Egypt for 40 years. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles because during their 40-year stay in the wilderness, the Israelites lived in these temporary huts or booths or tabernacles, tents. Every year during the Feast of Tabernacles, to commemorate their stay in the desert and God's provision for them in the desert, His miraculous provision for them during those 40 years, the Jews would build temporary booths, little 
tents, little tabernacles to live in during this eight-day festival. So all over Jerusalem, in the alleyways, on the rooftops, were these little tabernacles, little huts that the Jews stayed in during the feast. And look at verses 3-5. to His brothers therefore said to Him, Depart! From here, go into Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers. And then, and then that's, that's what they tell Jesus. And then John's comment on this. Therefore, because of what we just saw here, we can conclude that even his brothers did not believe in him. These, ju- these brothers, of course, are Jesus' biological half-brothers. John doesn't name them, but Matthew and Mark gives us at least four of their names. And we learn from Matthew 13 and Mark 6 that Jesus had both half-brothers and half-sisters who were Joseph and Mary's children that they had after they got married. In verse 5, John says that this advice that these brothers give to Jesus is evidence that they don't believe in Him. That they're not trusting in Him. That they don't really know Him. Where does John get this? How does John conclude this? What's his logic? How does he arrive at this? What happens in verses 3 and 4 that leads John to say that the brothers have not put their faith in Him? At first glance, it it actually appears that the brothers did believe in Jesus. Right? They believed Him to be able to do amazing miracles. He was a miracle worker and they believed it. And they wanted Him to get the attention that He deserved. This is glorious. You deserve glory. But to our amazement, and perhaps to our bewilderment, John says that what they're saying is actually proof that they don't have true faith in Jesus. So what gives? John's already told us, it's been several months ago, but John's already told us back in chapter 2 that there's a certain kind of false faith that believes in Jesus because of the signs and the wonders that He performs. It's based on the signs and the wonders and not on Jesus. You can turn back. Turn back with me since it's just a few pages to John 2. We're going to look at the end of John 2 in verse 23. It's an important passage. Comment by John here. John 2.23 Now when He, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover, another feast, during the feast, many believed in His name when they saw the signs that He did. But Jesus did not entrust Himself to them. He did not commit Himself to them because He knew all men. In other words, He knew that they didn't have genuine faith in Him. There were many who believed in, that Jesus was great, awesome, that He came from God, but there was no true faith in their hearts. Their faith was centered on the miracles and not on the Messiah. Which meant that their faith was not genuine faith. 
Nicodemus, you remember in John 3, is one of those who believed in Jesus' mighty works. He said, you're great. You come from God. It's very clear based on these works that we've all seen that you're from God. But he didn't believe in Jesus Himself. He believed He was from God and yet He was unwilling to entrust Himself to Him. In chapter 7, what John is saying in verses 3-5 to is that Jesus' brothers are just like these false believers at the end of John 2. They're just like Nicodemus in John 3. They're interested in Jesus' power. They'd sure like to be a part of that. They want to share in that. But they're not interested in His humility. They're not interested in what He's actually all about. They're chasing after glory, but it's not God's glory that they're after. And their lack of faith leads them to say really some silly things in verses 3 and 4 if you look at it carefully. They tell Jesus in verse 4 that He needs to do His works in public instead of in secret. But this is two and a half or three years into Jesus' ministry. He's been doing His works openly, not in secret. There have been crowds at so many things that He did. Sometimes thousands of people were present and watching. In fact, this was the big reason that the Jews, the Jewish authorities, knew who He was and wanted to kill Him already. At this point, Jesus had done many mighty works both in Galilee and in Judea. He had already manifested Himself to the world many times over. So how could His brothers say this? What were they thinking? Well, such is the foolishness of not believing in Jesus. It makes you unable to see reality. It it makes you unable to see the obvious significance of what is plainly before you and what has plainly happened. Over and over in this Gospel, John wants to help us see the difference between genuine faith and false faith. Genuine faith that leads to eternal life and false faith that treats Jesus as a genie who wants to do our bidding Saving faith in Jesus is something altogether different from believing that He can do miracles. It's not hard to believe that Jesus can do mighty works. True faith in Christ sees past the power to the person. The person who came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. His brothers had zero interest in knowing the real Jesus because they had zero interest in humility and service, self-denial, self-sacrificial living. To use the words of verse 24 at the end of our passage, they were judging according to appearance. Everything for them was on the surface. Outward. They were not judging with Righteous judgment, as verse 24 says. They loved the glory of men, not the glory of God. And we can become like Jesus' brothers before we know it, if we're not vigilant. Does your excitement about Jesus increase 
when He is being favorable to you. When He's doing things for you that make your life easier or more prosperous. Does your excitement about Jesus decrease when you don't have as much going for you? If your faith is centered on the exciting things that Jesus does for you or around you, then it's not centered on Jesus Himself. Jesus never says that His desire to make your circumstances good are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That actually changes, doesn't it? He only says that He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So make sure your faith is centered on Him. Make sure that your faith is in Him and not in what He has done for you lately. Verse 6, Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. Verse 8, you go up to the feast. I'm not going yet, for my time has not yet fully come. When he said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. Why can't the world hate Jesus' brothers? Why does he say that to them? It's because they are the world. They're still members of the world. And as members of the world, they don't testify as Jesus does to the world's evil works. And that's because their works are a part of the world's evil works. As unbelievers in Jesus, they're the haters, not the hated. We need to see here that they are in rebellion against Jesus. They hate Jesus. Not believing in Jesus means that you are against Him and that you hate Him. In verses 6 and 8, Jesus puts distance between Himself and His brothers by emphasizing that their timetable is completely different from His timetable. They're on a different schedule because they're on a different spiritual plane. Jesus is on God's timetable and His brothers are not because they still belong to the world and its timetable. Let's move to the next paragraph, verses 10-13. to But when His brothers had gone up, then He also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought Him at the feast and said, Where is He? And there was much complaining among, among the people concerning Him. Some said, He's good. Others said, No, on the contrary, He deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of Him for fear of the Jews. Jesus eventually went up to the feast sometime after His brothers did. And against His brothers' advice, He goes up not openly, but in secret. And verse 11 says that the authorities were looking for Him. They were seeking Him. And we know why, don't we? Verse 1 says that they wanted to kill Him. They wanted to find Him so that they could put Him to death. So they're going around asking people where Jesus is. Where is He? Have you seen Him? If you see Him, let us know. We want to know where He is. These Jewish authorities sort of remind us of King Herod who was seeking Jesus as well. 
but not for righteous purposes. The authorities assume that Jesus is going to be at this feast, and they're asking people to inform them about, of His whereabouts. But Jesus remains undercover, at least for a few days. According to verse 12, during this time, during these days, there, were, there was murmuring, complaining, it says. Some were saying, Jesus is good. He's a good guy. He does good things. And others said, oh no, He's a deceiver. But no one said anything about Jesus openly so that anybody could hear because no one wanted to be associated with Jesus in any way, shape, or form because they might get put to death themselves. And the, the hushed tones of these people highlight, by contrast, the openness and the boldness and the straightforwardness of Jesus. Jesus never speaks out of the side of His mouth. He always says what He says boldly, openly, confidently. He has done the opposite of what His brothers said He is doing, which is being secretive. Well, a few days into the feast, Jesus makes His appearance. He does come out in the open eventually. Look at verses 14 and 15. Now about the middle of the feast, which would have been maybe day 4 or 5, Jesus went up into the temple and there He taught. And it was a perfect opportunity for Him to teach because there were there was a ready-made audience of pilgrims that had come for the festival. Verse 15, And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? In other words, how does this man know how to read and teach the Old Testament so well, having never studied formally as a rabbi? or Anything like that. The Jewish authorities had been seeking to kill him. So when he appears in public like this, we expect them to seize him. This is their opportunity, right? They found him. But instead, what happens? Instead, Jesus seizes them with his words. Such is the force of the words of the divine word. His words are so powerful, they're so full of life and activity. That the only thing these God-haters can do is marvel at His ability to teach. They marvel at His expertise in teaching the Old Testament even though He hasn't received a rabbinical education. Jesus hadn't been to seminary, as it were. He didn't have the degrees. He wasn't one of them. And yet He teaches with far greater insight and authority than they do. Because His accreditation is from God, not from men. Verse 16, Jesus answered him and said, My doctrine is not Mine, but His who sent Me. You see, for Jesus, it wasn't about having a rabbinical education. That's not what, that's not what makes a man's teaching effective. His teaching is authoritative and powerful simply because it consists in what the Father told Him to say. 
So even though his teaching relates to the Old Testament, what he says about the Old Testament, about the Scriptures, comes to him from the Father. His interpretations and applications captivate people because they're from above, not from below. He doesn't rely on man-made traditions. He's not limited to what he learned at seminary. His teaching is based on Scripture and on his intimate relationship with the Father who shows him what the Scripture means and how he ought to proclaim it and teach it to the people. The church needs men of God who imitate Jesus in this way. We need preachers who go beyond what they learned in the academy, beyond what is acceptable in mainstream scholarship. Men who say what God wants them to say. Men who know what God wants them to say because they are guided by the Scriptures that are outside of them and they're guided by the Spirit who is inside of them. The church needs faithful spokesmen for God. Men who can proclaim prophetically the Word of God because they know God and they know how to handle God's Word. And they know how to proclaim it with power and with conviction. And they're not hemmed in by the traditions and the expectations and the sensibilities of man. This is what Christ's church should be looking for when she looks for preachers, heralds of the Gospel. And this is what preachers in Christ's church should be striving for. Verse 16 raises a question. How can we know if Jesus is true? How can we know if He's telling the truth? You've probably heard a lot. You've probably been in a lot of conversations with either someone from a different religion or an atheist who says, well, how, how do you know your religion is the right one? How can you know whether Jesus is an imposter or not? Or whether He really is speaking on the Father's behalf as He says, as He claims. And verse 17 provides an astonishing answer. It's, it's not an answer that has to do with rational arguments and logical deductions. It has to do with knowing God. If anyone wills to do God's will, he shall know concerning Christ's teaching whether it is from God, or whether I speak on my own authority. Consider what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that right willing is the basis of right knowing. The task of knowing the truth is not primarily an intellectual task. It's primarily a moral and spiritual task. You can't know Jesus until your will is to do God's will. That's why you can't reason someone into the kingdom if they don't want to do God's will. For those of you who like to study theology and who want to grow in your knowledge of God and His Word and the truth, 
verse 17 should motivate you to spend as much time cultivating your heart as you do your mind. Spend as much time making sure your heart is after God's heart as you do reading all the stuff you read on the internet or in the books. A surrendered will leads to a learning mind. Knowledge without holiness is not true knowledge. Because it only puffs you up and then it leads you astray. Knowledge without holiness and humility gets you further from God and further from real knowledge of God. So the general truth in verse 17 is that you'll be able to discern that Jesus is the truthful spokesman for God when your will is so transformed that your desires are God's desires. Your preferences, God's preferences. Then and only then will your mental faculties be able to think correct thoughts about Jesus, about His Word, about His world, about yourself. When your will is in sync with God's will, your knowing will be in sync with reality, with the truth. And the more your will is in sync with God's will, the more your knowing will be in sync with reality, what's real, what's true. But Jesus doesn't just leave us with this general truth in verse 17. He gets specific for us in verse 18 and tells us how our will must be transformed in order to know the truth about Jesus and what it looks like and what maybe specifically He has in mind, at least here. Verse 18 says, He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the One who sent him, and such a person is Jesus, is true, is truthful. That is, his teachings are true. And no unrighteousness is in him. What Jesus is saying in verse 18 is that in order to determine whether he speaks the truth, you've got to be able to know whether he's seeking God's glory, his Father's glory above his own. He's only true if he's seeking the Father's glory rather than his own. But you see, here's the thing. In order to know whether Jesus seeks the Father's glory above His own, you first have to know what it looks like to seek the Father's glory above your own glory. If you don't know what it looks like to seek God's glory above your own, then you won't be able to tell whether Jesus is seeking God's glory above His own. The truth, of course, is that Jesus does seek the Father's glory above His own. And the only way for you to know this, the only way for you to see with the eyes of your heart, with your spiritual eyes, the only way for you to see this truth is to join Jesus in seeking the Father's glory above all. That's how your will will become in line with God's will. 
That's how you will the will of God. By seeking His glory just as Jesus does. By, by joining with Jesus and seeking the Father's glory. And when you do this, you'll see Jesus for who He is. As the speaker of truth in whom there is no unrighteousness. So verse 18, when we meditate on it and think about its implications, it puts meat on the bones of verse 17. Verse 18 shows us what it looks like to will the will of God. It means seeking His glory above your glory as Jesus does. It means exalting God rather than yourself. And of course, this does not come naturally. Even after we are saved, we struggle to do this. By nature, I am like Jesus' brothers and the Jewish authorities. My flesh wants His teachings and His miracles to endorse my beliefs, my preconceived notions, my plans, my sensibilities, my physical and material well-being, and most of all, my love for self-glory. My only hope, my only way out of this is a changed will that submits to God's will. And verse 18 describes the deepest change that needs to happen in my will. I need to love God's glory more than I love my glory. I need to desire God-exaltation more than self-exaltation. I need God to rescue me. That's the transformation of my will that must happen before I can know Jesus. And that's the transformation in my will that must continue to happen if I want to know Jesus more deeply. Verse 19 confirms to the crowds that they're not interested in doing God's will. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? In seeking to kill Jesus, the Jewish authorities are condemning themselves. They're making it clear that they don't want to do God's will. After all, what is the central expression of God's will? Where is the best place to find God's will, His character, what He wants? In His law, right? And the law clearly says, you shall not kill. And yet they're seeking to kill Jesus. They know it. He knows it. Apparently, though, the onlookers, the people, were not aware of any plot to kill Jesus. So they say in verse 20, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? And we read Jesus' reply, Jesus' reply in verses 21 to 24. Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel. And the one work Jesus is talking about is when he healed the, the paralytic, the pool of Bethesda, back in chapter 5, which made them want to kill him. Verse 22, Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, going back to Abraham. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Don't judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. His point here is that the Jewish leaders 
have no ability to make righteous judgments about how to apply God's law. They don't understand God's law because they don't love the God who inspired it. They're willing to break the Sabbath to circumcise a baby boy on the eighth day, but they won't allow Jesus to break the Sabbath, if that's what He's doing, to make a man completely well, whole. If the Jewish authorities had possessed the ability to judge righteously, as verse 24 puts it, they would have recognized the legitimacy of what Jesus did. Their unrighteous hearts lead to their unrighteous judgment. Their righteousness is only on the outside, on the surface, at the level of appearance. If they had been righteous on the inside, they would have been able to make righteous judgments about Jesus and His works. And they would have seen that His works are actually from the Father. They're the Father's works. Well, in closing here, I want us to reflect on the driving force of this passage, which is verses 17 and 18. Especially verse 17. Which provides an explanation for why Jesus' brothers and the Jewish leaders don't know Jesus. They don't know the truth because they don't want what God wants. My son Aiden and I recently had a fairly extensive conversation with a young man who considers himself to be somewhere between an agnostic and an atheist. And he says that he can't bring himself to believe in Jesus or the Scriptures, though he said there's a part of him that kind of wants to. And during our conversation, it became very clear, very fast, that this young man's rejection of Christ was not the result of a logical deduction, a rational argument. He didn't have any good intellectual reasons for not believing in Jesus. He was extremely smart, extremely well-read, and all of the, the literature that helps him to not believe. But he could not defend his own worldview, nevertheless, with anything that resembled intellectual integrity. He was quite willing to maintain his incoherent belief system and even admit that he didn't have a way out of the incoherence in order to maintain his unbelief in Jesus. The thing holding him back from believing in Jesus was not a lack of evidence or a lack of sound arguments for the Christian faith or the arguments against it that he had accumulated. The thing holding him back is that he hates God. He doesn't want what God wants. He doesn't want to surrender his will to God's will. That's why he does not and cannot know Jesus. The biggest barriers to knowing the truth are heart barriers, not head barriers. The problem is in the will, not in our reasoning. The reasoning is out of line, it's out of whack, because the will is not in line with God's will. Our natural love for human glory makes it impossible for the natural man 
to know and follow a Messiah whose main purpose was to glorify someone else. The Father. By emptying Himself and submitting His will to the Father's will. Even to the point of dying an inglorious death on a cross. That's why John's Gospel emphasizes the need for a new birth. Only those who are born of God, who have received Christ, who are believing in His name, who have become children of God, will love making much of God more than they love making much of self. Only those who have been born of God will be able to exalt God and His will more than they exalt themselves and their own wills. So so don't make the mistake of thinking that you can reason someone into the Christian faith. It's not how it works. If a person is willing to believe that the universe came into existence out of nothing apart from God, then they are willing to believe anything. And this is a clear indication, no matter how smart they might seem, no matter no matter how many degrees they have, it's a clear indication at that point that they're not committed to the principles of sound reasoning. So that's not where you need to go with them. They don't need arguments. They need to hear the Gospel. They need to hear Scripture. God's Word. They need to be told at some point that they are in rebellion against God. They know God. Don't let them convince you that they don't know that God exists. Call them to repentance and to faith in the God that they know does exist. Call them to faith in Christ whom they know is God's Son. Because God's Word says it. Tell them that they need to repent and to believe and to put to death their self-glorification project and to glorify God. The truth of God's Word, the truth of the Gospel of Jesus Christ is self-evident. And it needs to be proclaimed. It needs to be lived out. And then it needs to be proclaimed. That's what we see Jesus doing here. And it's what we see Him doing over and over in the Gospels. Yes, sometimes He reduces their arguments to absurdity. But then He speaks the truth. And for those of us who do believe in Jesus, we need to be reminded constantly to continue to put to death our self-glorification projects and to glorify God. This is how we will grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding. Let's ask for God's help to do this. Father, help us to submit our will to Your will and to give You glory more than we give ourselves glory. We need Your help to do this. We need Your grace. We need You to continue drawing us to Jesus. We need, to, we need You to continue giving us faith in Jesus. Give us 
the fullness of Your Spirit so that we can walk in Your Spirit, glorify Your name, and obey Jesus in everything that He has commanded us to do. We ask this in His name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.